We are about to embark on a new series that I'm, I'm very excited for, and it's going to be a series of character sketches. Um, many of you know my passion for the Old Testament, um, and this new series on character sketches, you might wonder why would I do that and not go through another book. We will be soundly within the scriptures, believe me. And it will be expositionally done. But it's very, very important for us to understand the characters that God has portrayed for us in the Scripture. Here are a couple reasons that have driven me to this. Uh, number one, biography is interesting and helpful. Um, so many people don't read these days, but I would encourage you to buy biographies, especially of missionaries and of saints of old, and read about their walk with God. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us fairy tales, as some would say, but it does tell us stories. And the stories the Bible tells us include individuals, like you would expect. They provide a glimpse into the person's life and teaches us about the context in which that person lived. And so you get history thrown in there. And as we investigate an individual's life, we can't help but learn about the history of when he lived and the way that individual handled the specific situations that he's portrayed within. And we might learn how to deal with adversity or even abundance. Romans 15.4 tells us very clearly, for everything, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. Beloved, we need hope today. We need hope today. You see, the unregenerate live in a world without God and without hope, Ephesians tells us. And because they are dominant in the world, that hopelessness is everywhere present in the world. And the world seeks to shape us according to its form. But we are transformed by the renewing of our minds as we go to Holy Scripture and hear what our Creator says about the world. The world would tell you that there is no absolute truth. God says that my word is truth. And truth is another word for reality. Are we not living in unreality now? Of course we are. And it's getting worse day by day. And we chuckle, right? But this isn't funny. Because it's going to have its effect on us as regenerate people. Because we are definitely on the outskirts of culture and society. But don't let that daunt you. Biblical biography always provides us with a picture of the individual's relationship with God 
and God's relationship with that individual. And because these stories are life-related accounts, they're instructional as we identify with the characters in the accounts. Any story that you read, any movie that you see, you identify with one or more of the characters in that narrative. And it's the same way with biblical narratives or biblical stories. It isn't long before we can affirm James' assessment of Elijah and all other characters in the Bible and us that they are all men with a nature like ours. Even the greats, David, Abraham, Moses, God does not hold back. He lets us see their failures as well as their successes. Adam is a first man and naturally will be the first in our character sketches. But the stage has to be set before we look at Adam. And so I want to give you a bit of foundation on which we're basing these character sketches upon. And so I titled our sermon today, Before Adam. Now another reason is found in Psalm 11.3. And this is a very, very powerful text that I believe is very, very current and needful for today. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When Western culture shifted its worldview from modernity to postmodernity, it accepted the notion that there is no meta-narrative that cohesively holds everything together. And we're seeing the effects of that postmodernity in our culture that surrounds us. A meta-narrative is an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. But with postmodernity, which is everywhere, it's sifted down from the high ivory towers of academia right down to the streets. And so consequently, people have lost their moorings. The Western culture, at least here in America, at least had a memory of the meta-narrative called the Bible, and it served for many, many years, almost 200 years, to hold us together with a cohesive meaning to life. Even though many of the people that held to that were not regenerate, they understood that there was a creator God, they understood that you could offend that creator God by sinning, and that there was a hell as punishment for that sin. No more. No more. That's all fairy tale. That's been discarded. The Bible declares itself to be the ultimate grand narrative, saying this, God made known to us the mysteries of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He has revealed to us in the word of God the story of existence with him as the author. Postmodernity erases all such claims and denies the existence of absolute truth, even as it establishes postmodernity to be the only absolute truth. How ironic. 
but that's what happens when you mess with truth. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach this foundational segment of preparation for the marvelous stories of Adam, of Eve, of Cain, of Lot, of Abraham, of Moses. Lord, oh God, we are amazed at what you have given us in our heritage. It is a divine inheritance that you've provided for us to guide us through this wasteland. Father, we understand that sin has corrupted everything from our own souls to the very creation that we live in. And God, we long for that day when you will set everything right. Meanwhile, Father, direct us, guide us, strengthen us through your word that we might be as though we're lights in a crooked and a perverse generation, holding out the hope of the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, the first point that I want to talk to you about is biblical illiteracy. Over three decades ago, George Barna gave this sobering assessment when he claimed that the American church, quote, is immersed in a crisis of biblical illiteracy. And he explains, how else can you describe matters when most church-going adults reject the accuracy of the Bible, reject the existence of Satan, claim that Jesus sinned, see no need to evangelize, believe that good works are one of the keys to persuading God to forgive their sins, and describe their commitment to Christianity as moderate or even less than firm? 30 years ago, He said that recently in 2020, he released another assessment through the Cultural Research Center, and he declared that only one-fifth of those attending evangelical Protestant churches, that would be 21%, have a biblical worldview. Only 21% of evangelicals have a biblical worldview Regarding the youngest adult generation, the numbers are even more startling. A mere 2% of those 18 to 29 years old possess a biblical worldview. I am so blessed to see how many young couples are coming to Beacon of Hope. May you continue to tell your friends about your church, about God, about Jesus Christ, and don't be cowardly. If ever there is a time for holy boldness, it's now. And bring them to church. Let them experience the friendliness of this church. Let them see that there are other young couples that are coming to this church. And may your tribe increase. A mere 2% of those 18 to 29 years old possess a biblical worldview. He goes on in this study and says that the largest segment of people who describe themselves as Christian are notional Christians. Notional Christians. Those who self-identify as Christian and who do not embrace eternal salvation through a personal confession of sin and accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Notional Christians constitute 54% of U.S. adults. 
In Indonesia, where we lived for many years, there was a word for that. Their, their, their Christianity is skin deep. Kulit saja, it's only on the surface, it's only skin deep. It doesn't go to the heart. They're not genuine Christians. Now what does the Bible, or what does it mean when we say biblical illiteracy? It's important to understand this. Uh, one teacher, university professor of New Testament studies, uh, said this, most revealing in my mind is the fact that my students in my classes generally un- are generally unable to sequence major stories and events from the biblical meta-narrative. He says only 23% were able to order four key en- uh, events from Israel's history, such as when the Israelites entered the promised land and when was David made a king and Israel was divided into two kingdoms and the people of Judah went into exile. Only, only 23% were able to put those in the proper order, historically, from the scripture. And only 32% were able to sequence four similarly important events from the New Testament. Jesus being baptized, important events like Peter denying Jesus, How about the spirit descends at Pentecost or John has his vision of the island of Patmos? These students may know isolated Bible trivia. 84% knew, for instance, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because Christmas is when you get gifts, right? So they got that one down. But their struggle to locate key stories and their general inability to place those stories in the Bible's larger plot line betrays a serious lack of intimacy with the text, even though a full 86% of them said that the Bible was their primary source for knowledge about God and faith. That's where we're at, folks. That's where we're at. Al Mohler talked about the scandal of biblical illiteracy. He said, while America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some urgent attention to the problem much closer to home, biblical illiteracy in the church. It's true. It's true. As a nation's civic conversation is stripped of all biblical references and content, Americans increasingly live in a scripture-free public square. Because Christians are afraid to talk. They're afraid to bring their Bible to work and let it sit on their desk. They're afraid to say that they went to church on Sunday. They're afraid to say, pastor, our pastor at church brought this point out. I thought it was excellent. If I do. (laughs) But take it and bring it. Americans increasingly live in a scripture-free public space. Confusion and ignorance of the Bible's content should be assumed in post-American culture. That's true, our post-Christian culture in America. The larger scandal is that biblical ignorance among Christians. But it's my determination, personally, that Beacon of Hope will never be a church that marginalizes the Bible or biblical knowledge. We say here at Beacon, we are... Fairly young, we're 13 years old, we started with three families, and we're in the inner city, and not a really nice part of it either. We're an urban church. The truth of the matter is, we don't have a lot of bells and whistles, thank God we own this whole building, which is a miracle that God used you to purchase, okay? 
But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have a lot of bells and whistles. We don't have that slide that the kids can take to get to Sunday school. Come on. I mean, what's up with this church? I'm, I remember uh, early on we had our, our, our doctrinal statement up on, uh, online, and we, we used to say that we're, we're an ancient church with a modern, modern message. <laughs> but anyways... The truth of the matter is, don't have your wife sit in the front pew. I always watch her. If she takes out her nail file, I just say, let's pray. <laughs> I got, a, I got a, uh, an email uh, sent to Pastor Steve, and it said, I can't believe that you're doing a bait and switch on us because you, 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 you present yourself as as like this modern church and everything. And, and your website looked like a modern church and everything back, you know, 13 years ago. And he said, he said, but you've got footnotes. Who puts footnotes on their doctoral statement? And it's true, we do. We still have footnotes there to explain words that we know contemporary people just don't understand. Boy, we're in a bad way, folks. We need to ask ourselves, how can this generation be reached when according to another survey of high school students, seniors that is, over 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife? Or that the Bible's basic message is God helps those who help themselves? Biblical illiteracy. Well, because of the widespread spread illiteracy, when it comes to the Bible, it's vital, it's vital, people, for you to have an overarching grasp of the general flow of the Bible. And the first thing to note is that almost half of the Bible is written in a narrative style, including historical narrative, including parables. They're stories. And like any good story, the Bible begins in the beginning. But these stories are True, because God is not a man that he should lie. Genesis 1 through 11 begins in the beginning. The first words in the Bible is, in the beginning. The Hebrew word, resheth, means beginning or origin. And from the very first words in Genesis, we're told of the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything within them. It includes the creation of humanity, explains humanity's fall from God's grace. It talks about after the fall, the story continues on and addresses human brokenness because of the corruption of sin. Genesis 1 through 11 is written in a narrative style. It brings us face to face with the ravages of sin and the creator's interaction and answer to mankind's greatest problem, their alienation from God, their creator. In January, that'll be our next series and it's going to be entitled Genesis 1 through 11. Now it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a famous Soviet dissident, who wrote extensively about the political oppression in the Soviet Union and the gulag, or the the prison system, uh, prison system that he personally suffered through. Upon reflection, he wrote in 1983, he had emigrated to the United States after getting out of prison. Uh, 
And he wrote this, Over a half a century ago, while I was still a young child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. You know, Russia was in utter darkness for 70 years as communism took over that nation. And so the old people gave him an explanation for why those disastrous things had befallen Russia. Quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Simple. To the point. And very, very true. And he says, now after 50 years of studying and writing about Russian history and the tragedy which swallowed 60 million of my people, he says, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Today, in America, men are forgetting God intentionally, turning their back on God And when men forget God, they invert the creator-creature equation. And they place the creature at the top. You can give it fancy names like humanism and so forth and so on. And and you can forever go, but I think of God as the big circle. Man is the little, 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 little bitty circle created by God. And when you take that and invert that and make man the center of all things, you have dire trouble, like the trouble we're seeing right now. You see, as the story proceeds in Genesis 1 through 11, we're introduced to kings and prophets. Because in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man called Abraham, the father of Israel, the nation Israel. And the narration continues using that nation as a focal point of God's dealings with mankind. The Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. And it it, it sets the stage for the rest of history. The rest of history. From her divine election out from all the other nations to her rescue from Egyptian slavery, God delivered his law the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, showing the nation how God's people ought to live. And as the story proceeds, we're introduced then to kings and to prophets, and God raised up within the nation of Israel. He used them as a continual reminder of how he's going to deal with humanity's problem of sin. Illustrated so clearly through Israel's history. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to Malachi, the rest of the Old Testament, we see the ongoing troubles and and successes and heights and glory and downfallings and failure of the nation of Israel. Most of it in narrative form. Her story is one of recalcitrant sin and rebellion, but also of God's unending love and mercy. First, he sent judges. Then he sent prophets, then he established kingdoms and sent more prophets. We read on with incredulity as God forgives and Israel sins and God forgives again and again, all talking about the nature and character of our beloved Yahweh until the lowest point when God subjects the nation to a 70-year captivity under Babylon. 
And yet even in those dark days, he raised up specific prophets who told of captives of a future day when refreshment would come to them and he would send Messiah. Even in their chastisement and punishment, he gave them hope. He'd send a redeemer. And the prophets prophesied and the people listened. And the scribes wrote down. And God went silent for 400 years after that. Almost as if he were cleaning his palate from a bad taste of humanity's incessant sin and rebellion. 400 years, not a word, from God. And then we go to Matthew, right? And if you take Matthew all the way to Revelation, you see that after 400 years, God finally spoke again in a new chapter and in his story It began with the birth of the long-awaited and much-prophesied Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate in human flesh, Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus' time on earth, his perfect life and wonderful miracles, all attesting to his deity. He is God. He is also man. And they culminate in his arrest and his suffering and his crucifixion and burial. All those miracles that he did, attesting to him being God, he ended up on a cross. And he was buried because he died. But even this tragic event, God was pursuing his story, and Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. That means that an innocent one, Jesus, who never sinned, died on behalf of guilty sinners, you and I and all who are born into this world, to forgive them of their sin. All the Old Testament sacraments, sacrifices, pointed to this very event. They all had an innocent animal suffering on behalf of the sinner. And God covered their sin. He atoned for their sin based on their faith of sacrificing that animal on their sinful behalf. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he became the bridge between alienated sinners and an all-holy and all-righteous God, offering eternal forgiveness for sins for all and anyone who believes and trusts in him for that forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? It goes on. With Jesus' ascension and return to heaven, he promised his followers that he would send the Holy Spirit as a comforter and a guide to help those who believe and follow him. And the Holy Spirit empowers the church and all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He provides gifts to believers that enable them to go out and proclaim the good news. The gospel, that there's forgiveness for sin through Jesus Christ and there's a way back to God. And then we become co-laborers together with God in the ministry of reconciliation. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 6 verse 2 it says, we are co-laborers together with God. What a partner. We need to be about evangelism 
More on that later. <laughs> this is the segment of his story in which we're living today. We're right in the flow of his story or history. It's already been written. It's a story that's been told. And we're right in the midst, we're right in between his first advent and his second advent. He is returning. And I believe it's going to be very, very soon. The big picture is very, very important. Several years ago, Mary and I composed a Bible study to help people understand this historical flow of Bible history, and we called it the Chronicles of Redemption. Because you see, I believe God's purpose in history is the establishment of his kingdom, but it is through the redemption from the ravages of the fall, both in humanity and on earth. The effects of sin have produced broken people, but also a broken creation that groans and suffers in the effects of sin. The most beautiful thing we can see today is marred by the corruption of sin. What is it going to be like when that corruption is lifted? Oh, that's what we call heaven. That's what we're all destined for as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even creation groans and suffers from the effects of sin while awaiting our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, according to Romans 8. And this simple outline will help you to understand the biblical flow. That's what I'm doing. I'm laying a foundation today. I'm not breaking down verse-by-verse scripture today. Do you have that slide handy? Can you put that up, Noah? This is a grand theme of the Bible. It's very simple. There's basically six major segments to it. Memorize this. Know this. The need for redemption is discovered in Genesis 1 through 11. There's the creation. There's everything that we need to know. And then in Genesis chapter 12, with the introduction of Abraham, all the way through the Old Testament to Malachi, you see the channel redemption, the nation of Israel. Very, very important. The nation of Israel, the channel through which Messiah comes. And then the purchase of redemption, we see that through the life, sinless life of Jesus Christ, discovered in the Gospels, Matthew through John. And then he dies on a cross and purchases redemption with his blood. The proclamation of redemption is seen in Acts. Jesus' great commission comes at the end of Matthew 28. And then in Acts, you see how that proclamation is carried out. You know how it's carried out? Through the preaching of the good news. But it's not just one person preaching the good news to another person. It is that. But it's through the formation of local churches, people. It's through church planning. It's the most expedient way to reach a world with Christ is through planting churches who plant churches. And that's what the book of Acts shows us. It displays that. It's the proclamation of that redemption through, yes, preaching the gospel, but gathering those who believe into churches that can then preach the gospel and repeat it. The explanation of redemption is found in the epistles. I thrill with the explanation of redemption because what 13 of those epistles are were written by the Apostle Paul who was a church planter 
and he's writing to correct the problems in the churches that he planted. That gives me great joy. Because if the Apostle Paul planted churches that had problems, guess what? Okay? But the thing is, is that there are answers to these problems. Complete sufficiency. The Word of God. And we see this explanation of how redemption works out in the epistles. And then finally, the consummation of redemption in the book of Revelation. It is a complete meta-narrative. It gives us all the way from the beginning the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything within it, all the way to the recreation of the new heavens and earth without sin. Now I told you that we needed to do this foundational work because you've got to go before Adam. You have to go before Adam if you're going to understand Adam and the ongoing narrative. When we consider the beginning and read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we understand all this to have taken place prior to the subject of my first character sketch, the human, Adam. But do you realize so much had already taken place before the beginning? Take this down. Behind the course of time, there stand eternal realities. Behind the course of time, there stand eternal realities. There was an eternal experience past, eternity past. And then came creation of the heavens and the earth and everything that we know that's written about all the way to the end when God will establish eternity future. They're like bookends, eternity past, eternity future. So before the foundation of the universe, before the beginning, God was in loving communication with his son. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And we know that their communication was in love because Jesus told us that his father loved him before the foundation of the world in John 17, 24. Before the foundation of the world, God created the angels and the stars showing the insignificance of man. Where were you, we read, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, before the foundation of the world, God settled the council of salvation for the individual. He even wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life when he speaks of those not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, who has been slain, Revelation 13.8. There's a book with your name in it if you're redeemed. But there are those who are not written in that Lamb's book of life. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the beginning. God, who cannot lie, promised the hope of eternal life before times eternal. Before the foundation of the world, God promised hope eternal. And from before the foundation of the world of God, God prepared the kingdom for his own. You say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. No, that's what God's word says in Matthew 25, 34, where he separates the sheep from the goats, and he says, I want you, sheep, to go into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world, 
there is a kingdom already. It's a story that's already been told. Do you understand? And we've got glimpses of it here. And we've got just enough information, completely sufficient, to live our lives between his first advent and his second advent when he comes. And it's before the foundation of the world that God appointed his son to be the mediator for salvation. We read in 1 Peter 1.20, I love this, the lamb, unblemished and spotless, who foreknown, who was foreknown, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you as our redeemer and mediator. You see, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's exactly what it says in, in that verse, 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. You see, it all goes back to Christ, doesn't it? It always does, doesn't it? You've heard me say that. It always goes back to Christ. Jesus is all in all. He is the pivot point of all history, of all future world history, secular history, and redemptive history, even to the end of the ages. He is Lord. He is Lord. Christ is a mediator in creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. Christ is a mediator for preservation. In him all things hold together, and he holds all things together by the word of his power, Colossians 1.17. Christ is a mediator for reconciliation, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood on his cross. Oh my. Jesus Christ is all in all, at all times, forever and ever. Amen. You see, behind the course of of time, which we'll be studying when we start with Adam next week, there stand eternal realities. I didn't even get into the decrees. Oh my gosh. But come to the men and women's Bible study because we're going to study the decrees of God. Before the foundation of the world, before anything was there, he decreed certain things. You need to know what those certain things are. See, this is Bible 101, people. This is not some heady outrageous theological propositions. This is basic biblical truth, and we need it so bad. Because many have forgotten God. And we suffer the ravages of sin because we've forgotten the power that is Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that eternity past flows into time, even as time will at the last flow into eternity future. Oh God, you've written it all for us. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart to, to, to submit to you, our wonderful creator, Yahweh, our redeemer God, who's covenanted with us to save us and redeem us, but with a purpose, Lord, with a purpose. Oh God, help us to be faithful as you enable us to be. In Jesus' name we pray now. Amen.